Believe it or not. The Unbelievable. Believe it. Ripley's Believe It or Not. Incomparable, inimitable, illimitable, inestimable, introducer of immeasurable, incalculable, incredible impossibilities. Welcome to Ripley's Believe It or Not cast, the podcast that brings you deep into the strange, the bizarre, and the unusual. I'm Ryan Clark. And I'm Brent Donaldson. So, Ryan, there's a lot going on in this episode. We started reporting this this one as sort of an, uh, an investigation into the curse of accused witch Giles Corey, and that's super interesting, and, and we're going to get to that. But what we discovered along the way is that it's impossible to tell his story without diving headlong into the Salem witch trials. So we learned that Giles Corey was really a footnote in the much larger, weirder story of what went on back then. And along the way, uh, we met a modern day Salem witch who we're going to present here as well. So um, again, just a, a lot going on in this episode. But first, come back with me to September 1692. You're in the city of Salem, Massachusetts, a hardscrabble port town of the new colonies located 15 miles south of Boston. So at this time, the colonies are still under English rule. Witchcraft is a capital crime, and the population and the world is about to be turned upside down by the allegations of a group of children. Uh, This is a time when a child, in this case, 13-year-old Martha Goodwin, can accuse laundress Goody Glover of witchcraft. And all that's needed is for Martha, along with her brother and two sisters, to start exhibiting odd behavior. Glover would not admit that she was tied to any kind of witchcraft, so she was hanged. And the whole ordeal was written about in a book by the local reverend. Four years later, 11-year-old Abigail Williams and 9-year-old Elizabeth Paris, as well as other girls around town, start behaving much like the Goodwin children. And just like that, people in Salem began to see witches everywhere. Anyone could have been accused, you, me, our spouses, and the penalty was death. This was the case for a man named Giles Corey, whose wife was accused of being a witch in 1692, Corey himself was almost convinced, but stood by her all the way until he himself was accused of witchcraft. So both Giles Corey, who's 80 years old, and his wife were put on trial for witchcraft. And what could they do for a defense? They'd seen others thrown in jail for the same reason. Giles's idea? He'd get up in court and say nothing, but his refusal to plead brought about an archaic, little-used punishment under English rule. He would be pressed until he spoke. That meant he'd be stripped naked and laid out on a board, which would then have stones placed upon it, becoming heavier and heavier. So on the Notcast this week, we travel to Salem, Massachusetts to bring you an interview with the so-called Witch of Salem, Lori Bruno, a modern-day psychic and founder of the Trinicrean Rose Church. But first, we're going to dive into the gruesome tale of Giles Corey and the curse he was alleged to have placed on the town of Salem. So let's meet Rachel Christ, the Director of Education at the Salem Witch Museum. Rachel is going to recreate the events that led to Giles Corey's death, events that symbolize the greater hysteria around witchcraft during this time. 
So I'm, my name is Rachel Christ. I'm the Director of Education here at the Salem Witch Museum. Yeah, so Giles Corey is definitely one of the things that sticks with people, his story, because it really is, you know, the whole events of 1692 are horrifying and very, you know, very gripping, but with Giles Corey, it's just a whole other level, because the punishment that he underwent being pressed to death was technically legal. It was on the books as something that you could do, but it had never happened in America before. It never happened again after that. It had been used in Europe, but it wasn't something, uh, in England specifically, but it wasn't something that they did lightly. You know, this would have been seen as horrific even at the time. So basically, the reason why Giles is pressed is because, so to back up a couple steps, um, we start the witch trials. The events really begin in January of 1692. The girls start to exhibit these very strange <laughs> symptoms. <laughs> and around February, they've been praying. They've had doctors come in and look at them. They can't find an explanation. Essentially, somebody, we don't know exactly who, people think, um, historians think it may have been Dr. Griggs, who was a doctor who lived very close to the parsonage, suggests that it's possibly the work of the devil. It could be witches. And because of this, um, they start to ask the girls, is it a witch? Is, it, is a witch hurting you? Do you see a specter? Who is it? And this kind of leads to a snowball effect where more and more people start to get accused of witchcraft. So um, Martha Corey gets accused of witchcraft, which is a little bit shocking. She wasn't a, she didn't have a sterling reputation. She had had a child out of wedlock. Um, years prior, uh, before she was married to Giles. Um, so she, she does have kind of a sordid past, but she was a fully communing member of the church, which meant um, by Puritan standards, she had examined her soul and she thought that she was destined for heaven. And it was, you know, it wasn't something that was done lightly once you had that membership, that was a big deal. So the fact that a member, she's the first fully communing member of the church to really be accused of witchcraft. Um, so that's pretty shocking. And the whole story with Giles that um, often people kind of give him grief for is that um, he implicates her at a certain point and he says um, she could be a witch. That tends to get blown very far out of proportion. He doesn't really give testimony against her. He makes comments in, like, pre-trials, but he doesn't stand up in her actual trial and say, yes, she's a witch. So Giles gets a bad rap for that. There's no real animosity here, Christ says. It's just that they're a bickering couple in a companionship kind of marriage who may not know each other very well, but he never accuses his wife of witchcraft. And when push comes to shove, he defends her. But more and more people start to get accused. And most of the time, these are people that you would never, ever think to be witches at all. So Giles will eventually be accused too, and he'll have to decide what to do. And it all leads back to that horrifying moment of his torture. So Martha gets accused. Martha is imprisoned. Um, trials events go on. Eventually Giles also gets accused. And as the events of the trials keep rolling, there's an execution, there's another execution, there's another execution. And people are starting to get really horrified because the people who are being executed are not the normal suspects for witchcraft. Some of them are, but a minister gets executed. Um, Rebecca Nurse, who's this upstanding member of the community, never done anything in her life to indicate that she had made a pact with the devil. She gets executed and people are starting to get very nervous that maybe the law isn't 
operating correctly. Like, maybe, you know, the trials are, you know, everybody at this point is being touched by the trials in some way. Their neighbors, their friends, people they've known their whole lives are getting accused, probably knew someone who had been executed. People are starting to get really nervous. So Giles Corey's trial rolls around. And he stands up in court, and the way that their court procedure went at the time was they said... They were supposed to ask you, how will you be tried? And you were supposed to answer, by God and my country. So it's a very kind of similar thing you could say to being sworn in with a Bible today. It's just like a formal procedure to start the trial. And technically, you weren't allowed to start the trial until they said that. So you're basically saying, I will be tried by this jury and these magistrates. And Giles Corey stands up and he says... I'm not going to respond. I'm not. He says, I'm innocent. He does. He declares his innocence, but he refuses to comply with the court. And basically the reason why he does that is because everybody at this point who maintained their innocence and had been tried was found guilty. So he knows that even if he goes in and he has sterling witnesses and he has petitions signed for him and he maintains his innocence, he's probably going to be found guilty and hanged anyway. So he makes the choice to just say, I'm not rolling with your court. I'm not complying. So Giles doesn't comply, which means he's going to be pressed to death, something that has never been done before in America. In fact, Chris told us about a trial that took place centuries ago in Europe where they convicted a pirate of numerous crimes and sentenced him to be pressed, but hanged him instead after considering how barbaric pressing is. But back in Salem, as the public began to question whether this witchcraft terror was real, lawmakers were faced with a choice what to do with Giles Corey. The reason why they press him is really because they know public opinion starting to turn. They know people are starting to question their decisions and they're saying he's challenging our authority. We have to make a statement. So they take him out into a field, which is actually um, just around the block from where our building is. So they take him out, they lie him flat on the ground. They put heavier and heavier weights on him. Um, and then famously, as the story goes, we don't actually have any contemporary records that say he says more weight, but there was a poem that was published in England before this that had um, someone being pressed to death and saying more weight. So this was something people would have associated with being pressed to death. So it may have just been something that superimposed in later. He may have said it because that was relevant. He may have said something similar to it and the story has just distorted it. We'll never know for sure. But, um, you know, he's pressed, heavier and heavier weights are pressed on him. Um, A lot of stories say that it takes him three days to die. That's not true. He dies that day. Um, So basically your organs are smushed, for lack of a better word, um, and you die. And the, the whole idea of more and more weight being pressed on you is I've heard some historians argue that it's possible that he just, he knew he was going to die either way and he just wanted to die quickly. So he was just saying more weight, more weight, more weight, just because, you know, keep going. This is, I'm not coming out of this a winner, you know, I'm not going to suddenly be freed. So, and his wife was awaiting in jail and she ends up getting executed just a couple days later. It, it's very difficult for me to be able to wrap my head around that something like this could actually happen. What, being smushed? Being smushed, yeah. I mean, for lack of a better word. Uh, But not only that, but they didn't really have to do this. As we said before, there was precedent that had been set where someone else had tried this before, and you know what they did? They just hung him. So, sorry, they hanged him. So, uh, I don't know. To me, it's just it's surprising. The reason that they did this was for show. 
Yeah, well, uh, the French, uh, they they put on a lot of, of public executions um, for the same reasons. They they didn't they didn't press people, I don't think. Right, right. But they would uh, chop people's heads off on public squares, and it would be a huge social event. I think this feels a little different. It does, and it feels different because this was the the beginnings of America, and you know you're not supposed to have that kind of thing happen here, but uh, but it did. And that's what was so shocking. So as we said, this has been one of the more disturbing times in our country's history. Um, like other uh, historical stories and, and legends, uh, there, are, there are tales that kind of spin off of this. And uh, one of the more famous uh, in this case is the supposed curse that Giles Corey placed on Salem uh, right before his death. Uh, it's said that just before he died, Corey cursed the sheriff of the town, as well as all of the uh, sheriffs that came after him. Uh, believers claim that an inordinate number of lawmen since that time have died due to heart complications. Uh, but we wonder, uh, the question that we have is, is there any truth to that? So the the whole idea of the Giles Corey curse is a fantastic ghost story, but has no anchor in history at all. So the idea is, while Giles Corey is being pressed to death, um, so Sheriff Corwin, who is the sheriff at the time, is standing with him, and he supposedly, and we, there is a story of Giles Corey's tongue flopping out and him using his cane to poke it back in, and that actually has some bearing in history that may have actually happened. Um, and he was not considered, Sheriff Corrin was definitely not a great man. He had done a lot of things by this point that was not making him popular. Um, but the idea is, while he's being pressed, Giles looks up at the sheriff and says, I curse you and all of Salem or something along those lines. And um, a couple years later, Sheriff Corwin does die, and he dies at a young age. He's not old. He's, I believe, in his 30s, somewhere around that, maybe in his 20s. He's, he's still a very young guy. Um, and he dies of, we don't know, but it seems like something heart-related. So the whole idea is, from that point onward, there's this curse on sheriffs of Salem. Um, and supposedly, any time that a mass tragedy has happened in Salem since then, like the fire in 1914, people have seen Giles Corey's ghost floating around. Chris tells us that the Massachusetts colony had reached a boiling point. So while the Puritans came to America with the idea of seeking a religious utopia, they really were seeking it only for themselves, right? Those who believed in other religions were still persecuted. Quakers, in fact, were dragged through the streets and whipped. And as time passed, the English crown began asserting more and more control. Slowly, the Puritans began to feel like their experiment was failing. And that frustration had to be taken out on someone. All of this contributed to the witch hunt in Salem. The reason why the witch trials happen the way they do is because the charter has been taken away in uh, 1684. And once the charter is gone, they technically do not have laws. You know, it doesn't mean they're living in a lawless existence, but it's very unclear how their legal procedure is going to be laid out, how they're going to proceed from here, basically. And because of that, um, when the witch trials roll around, they do get a new charter. They get a new charter in 1691. It finally lands in Massachusetts in 1692 when the witch, there's already people in jail. So they set up this emergency court, but they still have to write the laws and figure out how they're going to work in 
America. And in the meantime, there's hundreds of people now waiting in jail. Not hundreds, but a hundred people waiting in jail. Um, so because of that, they make this emergency court that's operating by rules that would not have been used at any other time. So um, they're allowing spectral evidence to be used, which is the idea that I can basically point into the sky and say, I see Rebecca Nurse. You don't see her, but I can. And that's how I know she's a witch. And that was being used to convict someone for witchcraft. So uh, the, you, the, seriously, though, the one thing that really got me about this story, and, and I think you mentioned it um, a couple of minutes ago, but... It was how anybody, you're right, anybody could be accused. And the thing that kind of put me in a in a weird spot when I was thinking about this story was you said anybody can be accused, even our spouses. And I thought, well, what if I was like Giles and like, you know, like you said, it's like a kid accuses my wife of this. It was just such a weird thought. And I was like, it just totally creeped me out. And maybe your wife hasn't been so nice to you lately. And so you're like, well, yeah, maybe. Maybe you're right. I start putting two and two together, and you know, things start making sense. Um, it's weird. It's a weird story. So the the big thing about all of this is that Giles Corey was absolved of the crime about 20 years after he died. Good for him. And uh, so we've shot down the story of his curse. Uh, but Chris tells us that there are a lot of misconceptions about this town and its history that come up pretty regularly. Uh, one of them goes back to uh, a scientific paper that was published in 1976 by uh, Dr. Linda Caporeal, a psychology professor at uh, Rennesleer Polytechnic Institute in Troy, New York. Uh, Caporeal started looking into the witch trials in the early 1970s and came up with a theory that uh, a common grain fungus might be responsible for the hallucinogenic-like actions of all these children in Salem. I kind of love this theory. LSD is actually a derivative of ergot, which, again, is a fungus that affects rye grain. So ergotism or ergot poisoning has been the catalyst for other bizarre outbreaks, like one that afflicted a small uh, town in France in 1951. But could ergotism have caused the witch hunt in Salem? In other words, were people in this town essentially tripping, essentially transposing their hallucinations into would-be acts of witchcraft. Many have accepted this theory as fact, causing some textbooks to incorporate it into their history chapters, but as Chris notes, the reason why the trials occurred is a much more complicated answer. It's really hard to dig into all the factors that are at work, but um, people love the ergot theory, the theory that um, the reason why the Salem Witch Trials happened is because um, there was this fungus growing on rye or wheat, and they ingested the fungus, and that causes basically a hallucinogenic effect, and that's why people were accusing one another of witchcraft. It's a great theory. It would be really nice if that was correct, because it's such an easy answer. But it was basically, that idea was proposed in the 70s. It was basically discredited immediately by all of the historians of the Salem witch trials, for the most part. Um, it doesn't really make sense in Salem. Switching gears a bit. When Christ was a student at Clark University, her graduate thesis centered on witchcraft and the image of a witch and how it's changed. She says that the word, which has traditionally had a negative connotation, has taken on a more positive, empowering meaning in recent years. So the word witch continues to evolve. It can be used to explain someone's religion, occupation, or mysticism. It has been used to describe an emboldened, powerful woman, while it can still also be used to describe someone who believes that they have magical 
powers. To emphasize this point even more, we'd like to introduce a modern-day witch. She's 79-year-old Lori Bruno, known as the Witch of Salem, the hereditary high priestess and elder of the Sicilian Strega line of the craft of the wise, founder and head mother of our Lord and Lady of the Trinacrian Rose Church. She owns a psychic reading shop on Federal Street in Salem and says she uses the power of positivity to spread joy throughout the world. I'm Lori Bruno, Reverend High Priestess, yes, but human being, that is the first thing I am, okay? I am a Magi craft. I am the Magi craft we we have. We have, uh, there are many witches and they are of the, like, the folk ma- magic and such, and they believe in the old gods. However, Magi is what my family was, Magi. We go back many hundreds of years, and we've kept the tradition within the family. But we do teach other people, and our basic theology is that we get along with all religions and all of mankind. And that's something we have to learn, especially in this day and age, to be kind to everyone. I have a shop and a chapel. Our shop is called Magica, M-A-G-I-K-A, which stands for the Magi, and the Ka in Egyptian means soul. The soul of the Magi, that's our shop, but it's also the chapel of the Archangel Michael. Oh, but that that's a Christian, yeah, yes, they call it Christian, they call it Jewish, they call it Muslim. However, the angels know no religion. They were the archetypical light. That's what we follow, a light. All religions should follow light, not go ahead and mine's better than yours, yours is. We have to learn to learn about everybody's faith. And that's what the Magi do. Lori tells us that the word witch is actually an acronym for all of the things that she tries to be, and that these qualities represent what it means to be a witch in today's world. She says she hopes to show the world a better way to live. As I was 18 years old, I was on a television show many years ago, and they asked me the same question. I said, the witch is this, W, wisdom, I, integrity, T, truth, C, courage, H, honor. You could call yourself anything you want. Go around with all your diadems on. I'm a queen of the witches, blah, blah, blah. But if you haven't got that honor, you're just a noisemaker. Understand me? All the many people that went before us, oh, my God. Uh, Gerald Gardner, all of them, all of them. Uh, the, the Farrar, the Farrars, and all of the people, all of the England, wherever they come from. What is it like to be a magical practitioner? It is bringing the light to humanity. Please, all of you out there, we must at this time, it is the most dreadful time, use your magic to not do harm. Yes, there are criminals here. Yes, there are. Don't ever fool yourself. It's not a utopian world. But if we can show people a better way to live, maybe that might change. I get high on life. I've never touched a drug in my life. I get high on life. I see the sun come up. I see the trees grow. I see the beautiful energy that's out there. When you cease to respect each other, you're in trouble. You are in definite trouble. We have to care 
Our nation has to become a caring nation. I can tell you about religion and singing in a circle. Oh, God, oh, God, it's so bing, bang, boom. But if you haven't got that love of humanity, your words are empty. They mean nothing. As a child, Lori says she learned her father and mother had certain powers. She asked her father once about them, and intrigued, he began to teach her what his predecessors had taught him, that ultimately, all of our ancestors came from the stars. <laughs> when I was a little girl, I knew my father had certain energies in him. My father could make an egg stand on a table at the equinox. He could do strange things, bed, fork, spoons, everything. But one day I was hiding under the round table. I wanted to see my father, what he would do. My sister and brother were afraid of lightning and thunder, and they ran in the other room of my mother. But I didn't go in the other room. I hid under the big round table with the long tablecloth. I decided I want to see what Pop's going to do. So all of a sudden he started to say a few words. He put his hand up, and the rain and lightning popped. Now, how did he do that? He willed it. I know he willed it, because I've done that willing, too. And it's not that I'm the greatest poobah in the world. It's just that I learned the energy, how to use the energy, okay? Little things like this make me laugh and chuckle. But my father said, come out from under the table. What are you doing under the table? I said, watching you create the energy. Oh, you know about that. I said, yes, I do. I said, you did it and you willed it. And he looked at me and he said, you want to learn, huh? I said, yes. Aren't you afraid? I said, no. Fear is the enemy of humanity. Fear of people. I'm going back to this now again. Fear of people that are strange, different colors than you. Different ethnic backgrounds. Fear, fear, because you don't know these people. You never learned their traditions. You know, know it. I try to learn every tradition of mankind. I want to know and I want to respect them for who they are. The only people I don't respect are child molesters, rapists, and whatever. I would lock them up and never let them out. Anybody who's an abuser deserves to be locked up. And there are many abusers, abusers of power. I think we're seeing that now. Tra-la, tra-la. Oh, I grew up in a magical tradition. My father said to me, you are the star. He said to me, all mankind are stars. I said, what do you mean? Stand out with your arms apart. Your legs are open. Hold on your head straight up. You are a star. Do you understand? That's where we came from. We came from the stars. Why do we pray looking up? Because we came from there. And Lori agrees that the term witch can mean something very different than it did long ago. So it's not power she thinks of, she says. It's not about being powerful. She considers the term to mean positive. I would like to say not powerful. I would like to say a positive form. That people see us, that we can help humanity, that we are the other people. Hmm. The other people, not the well, I'm powerful. Oh, come on. If you start to think that you're powerful, you got the wrong number there. The power is that which is given to you by a greater force. And if you believe in that force, you can make things happen. Ooh. And I do believe in it. But a witch has to sometimes, I'll tell you, a witch has to be a lawyer. We have to know about medicine. We have to know how to help people. 
that that's who we are. Not that we are the old grand poobahs and wearing the big black capes and the hats. That's not it. That's outer show. That's a showman. The witch who is quiet and does her work. And when somebody comes for a reading, we know that they need help and we just do it. You understand? We do it silently. I like silent. Oh, yes. Silence is very good. And it, the, Sicilian, the Sicilians call it omerta. Silencio. Be quiet and do your work. Be quiet and do your work. This is what the church is. This is what the chapel is. Caring, nurturing. It is not destruction. No, I'll never die a millionaire. Who really cares? But if I've left this place because I've lived here and I've left one person on this earth to breathe a little easier, then I am a multimillionaire in more ways than one. And her work has become a family business. Her son, Anthony, works with her now. And Lori says her nine-year-old granddaughter also has certain abilities. Her name is Aliyah. She has a little gift in her. And I'll tell you what her gift was. I noticed when other children are hungry, she'll feed them. She will always give, okay? And I saw this in her to begin with, but she does have that little gift. However, okay. I do not force anything on any child. Let them decide themselves. Let When they make like, like my father did with me. My brother and sister never followed the path. Never. They believed in it, but they never followed it. But I did. I went on from that under that table that day into the light. I really like that interview with with Lori. Um, she's super positive and and she it really comes across that she's trying to do what's best for others. Um, I don't know. So, so my grandma was the most positive human being in the, on the planet. She she um, made friends with everybody that she talked to, anybody in the line with her at the grocery store. Anyone walked away as a friend of my grandma. And Lori kind of there's something about her that reminds me of that. Just that that positivity. Um, it's it's kind of infectious. I think I that's it. really cool. Uh, is this one of those stories where, you know, we talk to Lori because she's the witch of Salem, but. Is it one of those things where, you know, like the story really isn't about her being a witch so much. It's just her attitude. You know, I think that's something that I kind of took away from that. Too. Right. Well, part of the story was about how the word and um, the image of a witch has evolved. And I think it's people like Lori who are helping to make that happen. Right. Yeah, definitely. She doesn't come across as as some uh, textbook definition of a witch. Um, she comes across as someone who is a little bit different, but largely, like we've said, positive and interesting. And she cares about uh, the world and people in it. And yeah. And back in the day when someone might have been um, harmed because they were different. Now we can actually celebrate that difference. Good job, Lori. Okay, so we'd like to thank Rachel Christ and Lori Bruno for sharing their stories with us today. So, Ryan, have you heard the story of Katharina Hennett? Check out our website, ripleys.com, and learn about how almost 400 years ago, Hennett was running a local post office in Cologne, Germany, when she was accused of being a witch. Believe it or not. Let me tell you, things did not end well, and it took almost four centuries to clear her good name. You can find that and other amazing stories at ripleys.com. Okay, Ryan, so let's do some or not. Do you remember what that is? Nope. Oh, come on. Yes, you do. This is the ninth episode. 
You're right. I was just saying that. For, okay. For, okay. So this is where this is where we put modern day facts to the test because you can't always believe what you hear, including some of what you heard in this episode. Yeah. So today we've explored the legends of Salem, Massachusetts, where tales of witches and curses have been told for hundreds of years. But as we now know, those stories weren't nearly as haunting as some of the real things that actually occurred in this historic place. Still, as we discussed previously, there are some legends that are supposed to be based in historic fact, but really aren't true at all. The biggest of these by far, according to Rachel Christ at the Salem Witch Museum, involves the burning of witches at the stake. The legend that alleged witches were punished by being burned is so prevalent, Chris says, that she gets asked about it nearly every day. The truth is, none of it ever happened, at least in the English colonies. Chris tells Ripley's that in accordance with English law, the victims of the trials weren't burned. Witchcraft was a felony, so instead they were taken to the infamous Gallows Hill to die by hanging. While the punishment of burning originated in Babylonia, then spread to ancient Israel, Europe, and parts of North America, it was not employed during the Salem witch trials, and that is a fact. But no matter where there are historical misconceptions, from the Reformation to the Inquisition to the infamous witch trials of Salem, we at the Notcast will be here to set you straight, believe us or not. Ripley's Believe It or Not cast is produced by myself, Ryan Clark, and Sabrina Seek. Our executive producer is Amanda Joyner. The Notcast is recorded at the historic Herzog Studio, home of the nonprofit Cincinnati USA Music Heritage Foundation. Visit Herzog in person or sign up online at herzogmusic.com. The Notcast intro theme was put together by Colton Cruz, and our ending theme song is by the band Wussy. As always, if you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and tell your friends or leave a review. Actually, really do that. Like, please go do that. Leave a review if you like it. If you don't like it, please don't. If you have comments, questions, or ideas, email us at notcast at ripleys.com or tweet at ripleys. Be sure to catch the Notcast next week when we head down to New Orleans to talk to modern-day vampires. One man comes out of the coffin to talk about his need to ingest human blood in order to survive. That's next week on the season finale of Ripley's Believe It or Not cast. They murdered my ancestor, Giordano Bruno, burned him alive February 17, 1600. They had him in the dungeon of the Castle San Angelo, and they said, Giordano Bruno, if you don't recant your words, we're going to burn you alive. Now, mind you, this man was in a wrath-filled dungeon. He looked at them and said, You who pronounce this sentence upon me, do so with greater fear than I who receive it. Oh, he had the biggest goyonis going.
You can call yourself anything you want. Go around with all your diadems on. I'm a queen of the witches, blah, blah, blah. But if you haven't got that honor, you're just a noisemaker. Understand me?